Um, first of all, Matt, I thought that something that was funny would be uh, was the the listener feedback that we got from our nieces and maybe from your daughter. Um, yeah, we get the reviews are in from episode one of our podcast, <laughs> and my eleven year old daughter called it super awkward. And my eight-year-old said, I sound like a robot reading from a script. So if you're into that, then this is the podcast for you. Yeah. Um, And so I haven't, you know, I'm a classic over-explainer. You know, people are always telling me that I'm explaining too much, that I talk too much. In In reality, I never connect the dots for anyone. That's a fun game that I like. I like to just say things and then let people play the game of trying to figure out what the hell I meant by that. Um, So we just started this podcast, Nate and I, um, because we were having these phone conversations for sometimes hours at a time on a regular basis, like, you know, every few weeks, maybe once a month. And um, when I began the process of sort of journaling my thoughts or writing down my thoughts, um, it was like, well, why don't we just um, talk these out and record it um, for anybody that wants to listen or for for future um, that we can go back and 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 revisit. Um, so the format basically is just Nate and I. Uh, talking like we normally do about the most important topics that we can think of, um, which is kind of where we live anyway. So um, for those of you who may be listening or may be joining us, we're just, Nate and I are just wandering down this path of meaning and um, life's big questions and bouncing ideas and thoughts back and forth. And so uh, we wanted to bring other people into this who we know are thinking about these things too. Um, so that's our thought process. And, and, and the name is kind of funny, but, but Carl Jung is, is my personal hero. Um, I, I tend to make, no, no matter what we're talking about, I tend to make it about Carl Jung in some way, shape or form. Um Carl Jung so, is to you as Teddy Roosevelt is to me. A hundred percent. Perhaps. A hundred percent. Yeah. So um, that's basically the, the the premise behind this idea. There's probably going to be some, some uh, hopefully some, some funny stuff that we, that we put on Instagram. But for those of you who want to hear the, the full conversation, um, we're putting this podcast on YouTube and Apple and Spotify. Yeah. So Matt, I thought that um, our niece, uh, Hannah's feedback was pretty funny. So our sister was like, our sister Amanda was like, Hey, um, uh, Hannah thought this was hilarious, uh, especially the awkward silences. And I honestly was like, there were awkward silences. (laughs) And well, she, it, it brought me back to that. It brought me back to that conversation that I think you were telling me about between a nine and a five, um, where, where they were, the nine and the five were talking and they were like, yeah, how could we be any more perfect for each other? Neither of us will ever infringe on the other's boundaries. Right. Or pressure the other person to do anything. Right. So we just the, sit there in silence. <laughs> nines and fives have zero expectations for each other. So there's no there's no bar there's no standard, plus the fact that well Hannah let's let's be clear here, Hannah embellished our awkward pauses on the video, and she did it for clout. She wanted clicks and she wanted <laughs> followers on social media. However, you're just the other part is you're just used to the awkward silences. Anyone who's talked to me on the phone ever. <laughs> We'll become quickly accustomed to <laughs> looking at the phone to see if there's anyone on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, it, honestly, the the silences aren't super awkward for me because so I was telling, like I was telling you before we started recording, I, I haven't left the house in four days except to buy groceries and to take Haystack for a walk. 
Um, and so, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to finish this research. So I'm like, hey, man, this is this is some really some like really invigorating uh, conversation. I wish you had a time lapse video of you <laughs> sitting at that desk when that plant was like really small and and like you're just working and you're you're wearing the same shirt and the yeah. plant just grows to full size. Yeah. Yeah, well I've got yeah, anyway, we can, we can go down the plant road someday. Uh but but basically so what I tried well one Matt really leveled up last week because you had those coach prime posters and I was like dang um I got to find something good and I don't want you all to see like every, my home behind me so I was like um let me just show off my plants and then Matt showed up with a blank wall today. But uh yeah, these these are my plants. Uh, but because I'm trying to finish this research, I, I was like, how can I remind myself that I'm alive? Uh, I was going to actually record outside today, but it's raining. So um, so I just had to bring my plants in anyway, and I just parked myself in front of a window. All right. So, Matt, let's let's talk about vocation. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> uh, we talk about a sense of calling or a sense of purpose. And uh, the let, let me step back take a step back and say the reason why we talk about this you and i is because one there's there's like such interesting psychological intersections that that you can speak to and on my end this is kind of the focus of my research is on vocation and calling and how that what those experiences are and uh and so um so you matt matt threw me a softball this week and said let's just talk about vocation um, so that's what we're going to do. Yeah. So I, I think what's where, where I'm at in this, in this process, Matt, is that typically when we talk about vocation or sense of calling, um, one, most people don't actually know what to do with it, uh, but they can describe it. Uh, however, they can't define it, which, which is kind of like, um, it's, this is like a terrible analogy, but what's the, there was like this, uh, this, I, I can't remember what Congress was was dealing with, but they were trying to define, oh, oh, like what what's really harmful music back in like the early 90s where they had to put labels on CDs. And they were like, well, you can't really define it, but you know it when you see it. Right. I think that was like Nancy Reagan. Yeah. yeah yes, it was. It, no, Tipper Gore. Tipper Gore. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's yeah. better. Yeah, that's eighth grade social studies curriculum. I, I but got Na it. Nancy Nancy Reagan went up against like motley crew or or somebody like that yeah yeah and prevailed a hundred percent or or because her cause was righteous thank god for nancy reagan yeah indeed we want her on that wall and we need her on that wall <laughs> so uh so when we talk about a sense of vocation or a sense of calling yeah so we one we typically just assume that it's kind of like for for uh i don't know like ministers right? Like you're called to, to this kind of work or two, we, um, we like assume it's a, like this galactic sized purpose. Like, well, maybe this is why I'm here. This is my fate. Um, and the, for, for the folks that I deal with, which are mostly in helping professions. So that's like teachers, uh, healthcare professionals, ministers, nonprofit leaders, uh, the two questions that they almost always ask immediately are you know uh how do i know what my calling is and two uh, am i am i like doing it am i living out my calling um and th those are good questions but i those are completely un let me say it this way those are the least interesting questions that you could ask when you talk about a sense of calling um the the most interesting question that you can ask is um who am i as a called person so so we tend to have this like uh this this notion of calling as a thing or or whether you want to call it fate uh matt what does jung call it the um uh di uh daimon di well right? the, yeah the day the daimon yeah I, I don't know how you pronounce it in latin yeah. but 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 that was um that was Socrates, mm. who had so so Jung is referring to Socrates's daemon, who Socrates consulted 
his inner uh, it, an, an inner voice that Socrates listened to. That's it, and con- and consulted basically for every major life decision. Yeah, yeah. So we have this like idea typically that my calling or my fate or my purpose is out there waiting for me, and I've just got to like kind of eventually arrive at it. But what I think is really cool about the way that the ancient Greeks talk about this as a as a daimon is that the, the way they understand it is this, um, a very general version. So uh, before you were born, before you were brought into this world, your soul um, has had an identity. It has a DNA, an imprint, like, a, like an acorn, a seed. Um, and at birth, you forgot all of it. It was all lost. And uh, your soul chose, it elected your body and your family um, to carry out the purpose of whatever that that purpose or that DNA, that acorn said uh, it was supposed to, how it was supposed to live. Interesting. So you yeah, so you arrive in the world and you've forgotten everything the moment you're born. Your daimon is is your guide back to yourself. Your daimon is what whispers in your ear and guides you through life toward or into your purpose always. Hmm. So it's not like you're born and you know maybe there'll be like this like like in the in the bible it's esther right that she like lives her whole life and maybe she she was you know created for such a time as this but right in this telling of it you're you're like always being guided into it by this voice um and it, it and so there are a couple of implications one is that when you think about the idea that you chose your body and your family your soul chose those as the best vehicles to achieve the acorn DNA inside of you, to live out your purpose. So they're actually your choosing. You just didn't know it. And your daimon over time is whispering in your ear, telling you why or how. Um, and then two, that that it's, and I think Jung goes on to talk about this, that it's those that, well, that may sound wild, it's actually those that don't listen to their daimon or repress it that that are that are the ones that develop these kind of like like uh pathologies pathologies i think he calls them neuroses neuroses yeah yeah so so anyway um that's that's what i'm buried in right now and i thought i think that's really interesting is this idea you've got an imprint when you're born and it's no mistake who it's no it's no like uh yeah, it's no mistake or no coincidence. The body that you're born into, the family that you're born into, your soul actually chose those. It elected those forms. Right. You just can't remember why because you forget it all when you come into the material world. Yeah, well, it's interesting that that from that premise that we as whether it's Westerners or American North Americans – have sort of funneled that whole idea into like what job what job should i do and that the idea of you know your soul mapping out your life and your circumstances and then we go we we turn that into well what what should i do to make money and like that's the only question <laughs> Maybe it's not the only question, but it's like the first question that we ask ourselves when we start thinking about the idea of calling. the The other interesting, well, there's a couple of there's a couple of thoughts because because coming from um, our from my religious background, you know, I know um, a couple of teachers who would say that they would consult the spirit for basically everything like and even i mean it was primarily to ask the spirit about major decisions like you know what should i do for a living or you know who should i marry where should i live um but you would basically practice listening to those answers 
by just asking the spirit everything. Like, what should I wear today? Um, or what should I have for breakfast? So that in the same way that Socrates asked his daemon those those big questions, but it was a way of getting in the habit and recognizing, learning how to hear the answer so that when the big question comes up, this is not the first time I've consulted the the voice inside my head. The, Eckhart Tolle, um, who wrote The Power of Now, he says the key to being content in your circumstances, even if your circumstances are awful, is to pretend, not pretend, but imagine, tell yourself that you chose those circumstances. So it, it, in the same way that that maybe Socrates, and, and I don't know if Plato, I don't know if Plato would have aligned or how he would or wouldn't have aligned with that um, that premise, but but the basically, premise comes from Plato, and Socrates is the one who advances it. I think. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. Plato, yeah, and he he would put forth, you know, he would put forward a number of premises, and you're like, which one is is the one you're endorsing, Plato, or are you giving it to Socrates, or are you just throw, any, anyway? Yeah. But but it's fun. It's interesting that 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 would be Eckhart Tolle's key to alleviating suffering and coming and and uh coming out from under the burden of your circumstances is to look at those circumstances as if you chose them so now you take a sort of an empowered look at your own life hey this is what i created for myself this is not being imposed on me this is this is what I chose, and and you know if you if you take it all the way down to the ground of of you know to the the bottom level, we did have a lot to do with we do have a lot to do with exactly where we are. So that's an interesting that's an interesting premise, and and it has interesting implications. Yeah, well, I I think going back to there are a couple of things here. The the first one is going back to your like the conversation around career and calling. So in, in like, in my participant interviews, um, I, I can't remember how many, but um, out of, let's say, let's say a dozen, out of a dozen participants that I, that I had to, that I had to do interviews with, I think there were something like 46 different careers, careers that they would at some point in the, in the conversation, in the interview, say that they were called to. Hmm. Um, and I never asked that wasn't one of the, that wasn't one of the research questions was what career do you feel called to? I never, I never like explicitly asked that, but they would gravitate toward that question as if that was the natural outcome was some kind of a career. Right. And if you hold that side by side to this, to this platonic idea that, that you have a daimon in your ear, guiding you, guiding your soul uh, like toward its ultimate purpose, how silly does it sound to say like, well, I think my calling is to, is to find this certain, you know, this, this specific career. Right. It, it's like, how, how much could we possibly uh, shortchange what, what's actually happening with us? Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and one, you know, like whether or not you believe that the dot, like, I don't think anyone's arguing that the daimon is, it exists as like a, it's not sitting on your shoulder. Right. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's an image or a metaphor for a lived experience, right? It's a way of talking about a human experience, which is that we are called, or sometimes we feel compelled toward a certain thing that we can't not do. And we don't know why. Yes. Um, and, and that's where that's where Jung comes into the conversation, yeah. Is because because he's he's looking at that daimon as a universal. It's an archetype. Like we all have that archetype. Whether, that's it. Yeah. Whether you call it the still small voice, or you call it the the daimon, or you call it the Holy Spirit, or you call it God, or your conscience, or you call it your conscience. 
or maybe Freud might call it the superego, you have an internal voice that's that is directing you most times and whether not in it's not a universal direction it's 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 um specific to to each individual but you said it doesn't matter if you call it your daimon or it doesn't matter if you call it your the voice inside your head it acts on you as if it were god as if it were the voice of the holy spirit as if it were a law from god unto itself that's it that's the, and that's the quote yes and so back to back to that neuroses if if you resist or you go in conflict with that calling with that voice with that directing um spirit then it begins to present a problem for you internally you run into internal conflict and sometimes you run into sometimes you run into external conflict too but but primarily fundamentally it, it the conflict becomes internal and you become neurotic for for lack of a better word yeah yeah so i there's a there's an interesting all right, so we, we, there are two ways to talk about that. Well, there are multiple ways, but two helpful ways to talk about it are there's a sociological way of talking about it and a psychological way, right? So, mm -hmm. so Jung is talking about it psychologically as a psychological factor. Um, both both are going to talk about it in ways that are value neutral. In other words, they're not saying whether it's good or bad. Um, so somebody could follow their their daimon or their voice and end up doing re making really destructive decisions for the world, right? It's completely value neutral. It's a, it's just a human experience. Um, your right. socio, your like your sociology of religion, um, is is uh, is built around uh, Max Weber, who makes this really interesting argument that I think you and I have talked about before. That um, uh, that in America, our sense of calling has been consumed or subsumed under a capitalist a capitalist framework um, that has been appropriated. And the way he talks about it is this. So so you had your you go back to your like your pilgrims and your Puritans, man. Um your uh, well your Puritans, your early Calvinists in America, like like early and mid 16th uh, 17th century. Mm -hmm. They land in America and Calvinists believe that God predestines people uh, for either salvation or damnation. Right. And uh, and so, uh, well, how do you know which one you are? Well, the evidence is going to be in your good works. So when we talk about a Protestant work ethic, what we're really talking about is a Protestant need to demonstrate this the salvation of the individual by producing good works. In other words, right. yes, of course I'm predestined because look at how great I am uh, or how, how look at the good things I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so over time, as America secularizes and as capitalism, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, uh, becomes its own global force, that the idea moves from I need to produce good works to show that I'm saved to as, as you're calling to, I need to produce for the sake of production. So we've commodified our sense of calling. And now it's like I, the ultimate expression of my calling is a career rather than good works to demonstrate my election, my salvation. Right. That's interesting. Well, you can imagine, uh, you can imagine um an early american calvinist settler pilgrim coming to the new world and applying that work ethic or applying that that um that engine for productivity to the land to their to farming yep. to 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 uh ta you know city building um, to trade, um, and for a religious motivation, 
I'm I'm essentially trying to show my community that I'm part of the elect. But then the byproduct is resource acquisition. All of a sudden, because I, you know, I plowed my field so diligently and I I built my cabin so thoughtfully, all of a sudden my crops are growing, my my settlement is flourishing, my homestead is expanding, and then it's like, oh well, yeah, and and obviously you could probably trace this back further to you know to Europe, but but it probably became um, exaggerated, multiplied in in the American colonies because it was a new land, a new opportunity. And then all of a sudden, you, it's almost um, it, it's sort of commodified. This this work ethic it becomes sort of an American capitalist work ethic, um, and, and no longer a religious, and no longer just religious fervor. Yeah, and it moves from the you nailed it. It moves from the communal or the collective to the individual over time, which is also a capitalist idea right is that each individual is a producer yes and and you know we talk about the american dream it's really the capitalist dream which is i as myself can show up and make something of myself but the the way that like max weber talks about this transformation is that when the puritans get to america um they arrive you know they arrive in a continent in which they are obviously the vast minority, and they see themselves as being a using that biblical term, a city on a hill. So their election is uh, their 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 selection by God is obvious from their standpoint because they're going to be a shining city on the hill across the Atlantic back to Europe and also to the Native Americans that they yeah, view the new as world. yeah as unsaved and you know barbaric. But what happens, you know, a couple of generations later, when you look around and everybody is like you, you've, you've done it, right? So, so there's, so is everybody then elected? Is everybody selected or predestined by God? So then you've got to move from the community into the individual. And now I've got to differentiate myself because I'm, I'm in a, like a homogenous community okay, as far yeah. as I can see. Yeah. You're no longer diff trying, attempting to differentiate your community, yeah, from the from the external world. You're trying to differentiate yourself from the community. That's right, because yeah. we've expanded and we've succeeded. You know, like we've cleared the land and built built new towns, and now everywhere I look, all of these other towns are doing the same thing. So, am I really a city on a hill? Because I'm not any different than they are. So yeah. now the individual has to differentiate themselves. And they do that by productivity. Yes. And, and also by adhering to strict moral guidelines like what is it? You don't you don't gamble, you don't dance, you know, you don't you don't drink, all that stuff. These are also the same folks that um uh that perpetrated the Salem witch hunts, by the way. Right. Well, it it's it's really easy to be more Christian than the natives. Yes. But then once you've surrounded yourself with Puritans, all of a sudden you've got to up the ante, the holiness ante, and and really prove your your election. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's much easier to meet your own moral guidelines that you didn't tell your neighbors that they needed to meet. Yes. Right. So it's way easier for me to be like, yeah, I, I'm meeting the moral guidelines that I set. And they're not, but also I did. They don't know that they're supposed to do that. Yeah, but also they don't know about the moral guidelines. And yeah. Don't tell them. Yeah, and don't tell them because then how will I know? Yeah, yeah. But you can see how quickly, how quickly the the idea of calling or the idea of of that inner voice, the idea of that spirit leading you. Gets subsumed under the paradigm of American capitalism and American productivity. So very quickly, it becomes, you know, what what job 
what job am I called to do? Um, and that's where it gets weird. That's why it's, it's, that's why it's weird for me. That, and that's why the question is weird for a lot of people, because it's like, why does God, let's just put it in the, in the God context. Why does God have a specific job for me? And, uh, you know, even if my, my faith and my spirituality or my religious background background is casual or, um, you know, if, if, if you say I'm spiritual, but not religious, um, or even if you say, if you're devout, um, why is it that I don't have a calling in these other areas of my life, but this one, like when I cut, when I'm 22 or whatever it is, I now or 18 when I'm picking my major, I've got to find this calling and I've got to figure out how to, that's where, that's why I think the waters get muddied and why it gets weird for people to try to, to try to navigate this conversation. And, and, and then to, to further complicate, you say, well, what about God's not going to call anybody to, to clean bathrooms or God's not going to call. And then you start picking out all the jobs that need to be done that you can't imagine God calling you to do because the calling conversation has been taken so far out of context and subsumed into the, the, um, you know, the career, the capitalist framework, the capitalist fr framework. Yeah. With, <clears throat> and, and that's, uh, how do I say this with the, with the progress throughout the 20th century, well, let's let, let me take a step back. It it only works if you have something or somebody to compare yourself with or to. So hmm. the Puritans, the Puritans are looking when they get here, they're looking collectively and they're looking out at the wilderness. They're looking back across the Atlantic at, you know, these, you know, these uh it, you know, like immoral denominations and immoral, you know, uh Catholic institutions, uh um and then they they you know kind of tame tame the the wilderness around them right in the immediate uh, and what what happens after that well we we enter into a phase of manifest destiny where we look at the rest of the continent and we say god is calling us now to take on the rest of the continent to civilize mm -hmm. right and so we push westward and that ends right we i think the official close of the frontiers around 1890 1892 something like that which a few years later is going to coincide, let's say, I, I, whatever it is, 25 years later is going to, we're going to see the rise of communism, right? And so where the 19th century ends uh, with the closing of the frontier, the 20th century begins and offers us somebody new to compare ourselves to. Now it's the communists. Okay. Right. So it, it uh, so capitalism becomes even more aligned with a sense of like Christianity or a sense of God's, you know, God's choice of, of systems. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's our entire, that's the cold war is that God, you know, God is on the side of the Americans and the capitalists because we have democracy and because we have a free market. And so now being productive, being a productive American takes on, new meaning it is now even more so a calling yeah than it ever has been and it also becomes more i would say it becomes more meaningless um uh, more personally meaningless yeah because people have you because you can go back further i mean you can go as far back as as uh recorded history and there are people who feel called to to take on roles, uh, you know, people who feel called to 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 join a monastery, people who feel called to be a nun, people who feel called yeah. to be a priest or a missionary. I mean, go back to go back to Jonah, um, where Jonah's called to go to Nineveh. But but the the real shift is now you have people. Well, I feel called to the business world. I've it, it, putting it in those terms 
as opposed to like, I need to get a job. <laughs> you say, yeah. I feel yeah. called to the business world. And it it's hard to orient yourself to that language. Like what, what do you mean when you say that? And what, do, what should you, is that, is what you're saying real? Is that a, are you really, is like God calling you to business, like business? I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not an experience that people are having. I'm just saying like, how do we fit that? What people are saying today does not fit into the historical context of how people experienced that in the ancient world and, and all the way up to, you know, the, the pre-modern uh, turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So when we talk about being like, like you use the example of being called to the business world. So I, I would say that one of the defining factors of vocation or a calling is that it involves some kind of sacrifice. Um, some, some form of, it, it has to cost you something. Okay. And that's part of why it, like Jung talks about it as that's part of why it's Jung talks about it as an irrational factor. So it would be like, I mean, look at, I don't know, look at mother Teresa, right? Uh, I don't know what mother Teresa could have been, but she probably could have chosen a life that was more comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. Where she was, uh, you know, surrounded by, you know, all the resources that she needed to feel, you know, like to serve all of her needs, um, but she makes this choice. Uh, it, it comes at an expense. It, there's a cost to it in order for her to follow her calling. She's got, mm -hmm. you know, she's living on the streets of Calcutta with, you know, the, the sickest of the sick and the poorest of the poor. And um, so when we talk about like um, uh, things that we may feel called to in the world. I think um, we have to ask ourselves, what is this costing me? What's the expense or the sacrifice? Like Jung, Jung talks about it as saying that it's it's a, this it's the irrational factor that acts as a law of God, like a law of God. But he says this is really interesting that a defining factor is that it separates the person from the herd, from the well trodden and safety, well trodden paths and safety of the herd. What he's saying is it costs you something. Mm -hmm. There's a risk involved. And right. Yeah. And so when we talk about being called to a career, that, that that may be true, but imagine it's hard to imagine talking about being called to a certain career in the same terms as Jung is talking about a thing that acts as a law of God unto itself that separates you from the safety of the majority and places yeah. you at risk somehow. Okay, so let's so so fundamentally, if we're thinking about a calling, then we're talking about a direction, a path, a choice, a move that you wouldn't make otherwise. Yes, that's it. So it a calling is not something that you like we're already going to do. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but like, if you were already going to do it, then you wouldn't need to be called, right? Like, yeah, it, that's that's right. It has to be something that is off of your, like, uh, like the like the bur It has to be like the burning bush, where Moses is is on his way to uh, Laban. Is that is that who or is that Jacob and Esau? That's Jacob and Esau, bro. Who's who's Moses's father-in-law, Saban, Nick Saban, Laban. I don't his know. His wife is Zipporah. J J Japheth, Japheth. No, no. I don't Are you know. sure? Are you sure? You're no, not, sure. not at all. <laughs> okay. Moses is on his way. Jethro. I think Jethro. It's Jethro. Jethro. You, yeah. He's on his way from Egypt. He's escaping Egypt to. I don't. Why am I adding details that I don't that I'm not confident in? No, no. This is good. Keep going. Our nieces are learning something. And he <laughs> sees out of the corner. He's going across the desert, and he sees out of the corner of his eye the burning bush, a bush that's not being that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. 
and he has to go off his path to investigate and to see what this is. And there he hears the voice of God. So he's called off of his current path. Like if, if he was just going to his destination, that's then that's not by definition a calling. A calling has to be taking you somewhere that you wouldn't have gone on your own. Some some other force is calling you like a you know like a shepherd and a sheep. The shepherd calls the sheep would just lay around and eat grass, and the shepherd calls you know the sheep to come wherever which direction it wants to go. So initially to even identify a, the your experience as some sort of calling it has to be a pull towards something you weren't going in a direction you weren't already going to go and that's what a, and that's what where the sacrifice element comes in because going on a different path than you had planned on is going to involve some kind of sacrifice yeah um it's going to cost you something but this is what you're saying is is puts the modern claim um in an interesting context so if you say well i feel called to i feel called to business i feel called to the business world which a lot of um i've heard many times from from evangelicals well then and you you put the the only reason you would say that is because so many people from your community are going into ministry, full-time ministry of uh, or whether the, in some capacity or another and so you say well i feel and 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 obviously that's obviously validated for a number of reasons well you know it's it's a it's a it's a godly it's a it's a godly it's a high calling to go into the ministry. Well, instead of just saying, well, I'm going to go get a job, you say, I feel called to the business world because ordinarily what I would have done is I would have gone into ministry. But no, I feel called off of my path toward ministry, toward business. Does that make sense? Like, yes. Where like it, it, for historically, it's the opposite. Where just everybody, either you know, works on the farm, or trades, or you know, you some sort of craftsman. You sell something, and oh, you have this experience of calling, and you say, "Oh, I'm going to give my life to the lepers in Calcutta." But in the in the modern, in the last you know twenty years, now you say. Well, you know, everybody's the normal thing to do for someone who's as zealous as I am about my faith would just be to go into the ministry. But uh, alas, I feel called to go into business. And I'm not I'm not mocking that experience. I'm just saying it's vastly different than the, the traditional um, experience. Yeah. And I. So when we talk about this this sense of uh, sacrifice, right? Uh, one of the one of the less explored areas of vocation is the way that it intersects with a sense of grief or loss mm -hmm. that that I found incredibly compelling. And um, so there's a there's a quote by Frederick Beekner, who that that's often used. By like for instance, my students to talk about uh, your calling that it, it's something something like uh, your calling is uh, is the place where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet, right? Um, but I, I was listening to a, another podcast uh, called NetView, the Network of Vocation Undergraduate Education by, and they had a guest Dina Thompson on there who. Um, who reframed that and said, what if it's where your deep sadness and the world's deep hunger meet? And, and she talks about it in the sense of the vocations we do not choose what she, what she's the argument that she's making is like, for a lot of us, we become aware of that deep hunger in the world because that deep hunger uh, 
destroyed part of our lives, hmm. right? Um, uh, this is the you know this is the parent who loses a child to cancer and realizes how few resources there are for parents whose children get terminal cancer diagnoses, and says, for the rest of my life, I'm going to devote myself to making sure that no parent ever has the experience, ever has to go through this experience alone. Right. Their sense of calling will forever be linked with a sense of grief or a sense of loss. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've got, I, I've got like one of my best friends. Um, uh, she was, uh, she and, and her, and her aunt are, uh, her aunt is the minister of a church in Orlando. And uh, she was down there. She was working there at the time as well. And during the the Pulse nightclub shootings, um, where you know almost almost fifty people were 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 murdered in the nightclub in the middle of the night because they were in a gay nightclub. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the anniversary was just a few months back. Uh, and I was I was like listening listening just just listening to her talk about it uh, about that experience because she was there that weekend that it happened and their church was just a couple of blocks down the road. And so their church became kind of like the, the hub of the recovery effort mm -hmm. and, um, and has become like kind of uh, sort of like a flagship, a flagship church down there. Um, and so for the anniversary every year, there are just like hundreds of people that come down to Orlando to, meet with survivors and survivors' families every year to commemorate and make sure that it's not forgotten. Um, and they they like to vote their lives to this thing. And yet it's also a thing that was so incredibly and continues to be traumatic for them. Right. And so while we think about a calling as like this thing that's going to fulfill me, it's also for many folks linked to a sense of loss. And I think that's part of where the sacrifice that, that like, what is it costing you? Part of where that conversation comes in um, is that it actually doesn't take you further away from your human experiences, right? Like in the Christian context, we think like, yeah, I've got, like, I'm called to ministry and it's out there and I've got to go figure out, discern what this thing is so I can finally arrive at it um, as if it's going to like save you from yourself, right? right. As if you're like, you're Saul on the road to Damascus and your calling is going to be this light that flashes and blinds you. And now you're an entirely new person and you don't have to like live in the old self anymore. But I would say your calling takes you deeper into that self. It doesn't, right. it doesn't like save you from that. It actually brings you further into those experiences. So in anyway, I, I think that's like incredibly compelling. Like I, I, I one of, uh, I, I was talking to a, a college student once who felt called to felt a calling to ministry in the days after um, her sister took her own life. And um, she had an experience in the hospital room um, with a chaplain and with a couple of her family members and was like, I, I need to do this. Um, and so she's talking to me about what this experience is like for her. And, and um, she says, her calling, this is the way she described it. I'm going to paraphrase, but it was like walking in a, it's like walking in a deep forest and you never actually find your way out. You just become more comfortable walking in the darkness. Mm. I mean, who, who talks about their calling that way? Right. That's, that's not a capitalist framework for a calling. That's not even typically how we talk about it in a Christian context. Right. But her calling was not taking her out of the forest. Her calling was actually bringing her further into it. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if you think about it psychologically, and and this has spiritual implica implications too. But what? Okay, let's so let's reframe this. You, you've got this. Let's just say you've got this daimon. You've got this inner voice. You've got the voice of the spirit. You know. It could be the voice of the unconscious, but you've got this voice speaking to you and and trying to guide you, trying to mm -hmm. keep you on the higher path towards your true self. Let's just say, for lack of a better word, what could possibly 
be a better um be a better sort of kicking down the door to access that voice than some period of grief so that that voice that voice has been so if you think about it this i think about it this way that voice has been speaking to you let's just say from a platonic standpoint that voice has been guiding you from the beginning that 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 spirit that angel chose your parents for you and has been speaking to you from the beginning but you weren't in touch with that spirit you weren't connected with that voice you couldn't hear that voice until something not it doesn't have to be traumatic but until grief sets in until you lose something and then all of a sudden you go what is that voice what is that you say something is something is speaking to me and it's like yeah well that's been speaking to you this whole time but it took the loss of of um something important in order for you to get in touch with that voice and then all of a sudden you feel called whereas you you have been you've been a called person you are a called person but you right. didn't identify yourself in those terms until you lost something meaningful um and now all of a sudden that come that part of you comes alive and you go oh i found i found my calling and it's it's not because necessarily it's not necessarily because some tragedy caused god yeah. to speak to you god's been speaking to you but you just weren't in touch with it you've been in the forest like you you were already in the forest yeah but then some something tragic happens and it causes you to let go of you know all of these whatever you're holding on to and to look around and you go whoa i'm i'm in the i'm in the forest here i'm in the darkness and this is and this is where i'm supposed to be like i'm here and this is and now i realize i'm supposed to be here i'm called to i'm quote unquote called to be here that's it yeah it, it's paul tillich i think that says um suffering takes us beneath the pattern uh, the beneath the routines of life that that and again I, we're not making a just to clarify we're not making a causation argument here right right yeah um but it's it's and we can this is universal like we can all identify with this that at some point at some point when we were going through something difficult right that we were able to understand a part of our lives differently afterwards yes it's it's that simple and i think for um um for anybody that's ever okay ask a teacher right any teacher that's ever been like you know i decided to become a teacher usually you have for your great teachers you have like two answers right one is either i had this amazing teacher and i i wanted to do that mm-hmm. i wanted to be that person for somebody else the other answer is i wanted to make sure that that uh, no student fell through the cracks like I did, right? Mm. Yeah. That that I had a hard time in high school or I had a hard time in middle school or you, f- you fill in the blank. And um, I decided that I wanted to, I wanted to be the person I wish I had. Anybody that's ever said those words about anything they've ever done is in some way, I think, articulating a version of what we're talking about here. Right is a sense of self, a sense of purpose that comes, um, that is accessed through, you know, um, simultaneously with, with suffering or is accessed through doing hard things, going through hard stuff. Yeah. And, and in that way, it's, it's why calling is often described as a thing you can't not do for reasons you can't fully understand, but are nonetheless compelling. Mm-hmm. That it both fulfills me and also is anchored to, in many ways, a sense of loss. Like even you talk to folks that that, um, yeah, that are following their calling, and some of them will will even you know I've heard them discuss like 
they grieve for a life that they thought they they would have before they felt or experienced a sense of calling. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I, I think honestly, I think Mother Teresa actually actually talks about these in her journals. These, oh, really? these ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she she had some pretty incredible journal entries, her diary entries that were that we found after her death, where she talked about just how um maybe like how she's she has this feeling at times that she's missing out or she's doubting what she's doing mm-hmm. because she could be living in a million different ways and still be doing good, right? It's not like she'd be it's not like Mother Teresa would be worthless. Right. Um, but it wouldn't be her calling. It wouldn't be authentic right. to her voice, which is, and this will be the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll quit going on, but which is why the question is not, what is my calling? And the question is not, am I living out my calling? The question is, what do I do with myself? Or what is the calling asking me about myself? Yes. It's not external and it's not cerebral. It's not knowledge. What is it? And it's not action oriented. Like, am I doing it? It's about identity. Yes. The The real question is what do I do with myself or what is this thing telling me about myself? Yeah. And so you're, then you're, you're faced with two, with two choices from, from the beginning, either, either these people, either anyone who claims that they're called is delusional and there's no real, you know, your conscience is just sort of an evolutionary construct that has sort of gone, it's gone a little overboard. Your super ego is a little too developed and um, people are mistakenly experiencing grief in terms of God sending them in, in a certain direction. Or, or they're okay. using calling to fabricate meaning yes. out of their grief, right? Yes. To try to find a reason. Yeah. So, which would, which would essentially be that no one, there's no such thing as calling. There's no right. such thing as the diamond. There's no, it's just, it's just sort of an, an, an illusion or that it's, that it's a universal archetype that, that this is an, this is a universal experience. Calling is archetypal. We all have this um, part of ourselves that is speaking to us, that's trying to tell us something about ourselves. And, and if you fall into the ladder, if you take the ladder, the position of the ladder, you're talking about, this is where Freud said, the purpose of life is to make the unconscious conscious. What he was saying is what we're essential is the process we're essentially describing where I there's parts of me that I'm not that I'm disconnected to there's a voice inside of me that I'm not in touch with there's some part of me that wants that wants me to be moving in a certain direction that wants me to be experiencing certain things and so it's a matter of hearing that that that's where you get into all the that's where you get into dream analysis and that's where you get into psychotherapy and that's where you get into all the experiments that that Jung would would run on himself it like Jung would, would he would hold a pencil up to his forehead when he would fall asleep and then when he fell asleep he dropped the pencil obviously and the the noise of the pencil hitting the floor would wake him up and so then he would journal whatever he was whatever he was thinking when the pencil woke him up and what he's trying to do is to get in touch with the, his own voice the voice of the unconscious the voice that he's repressed that's his own unique it's it's his soul really he's trying to get in touch with his soul he's trying to understand what his soul is telling him and and the diamond is you, you know, it can be, you, you could call it the soul, the spirit, his own, what is my own spirit calling me? Who is my own spirit calling me to be? Who am I? Because I've repressed so much in order to survive, in order to 
um, survive and thrive in the world that I'm pushing down parts of me that would, you know, hinder my progress. Well, now I've got to get back in touch with those parts of myself that I've pushed down. And that's the process of, it's another way of thinking about and experiencing your calling is you're getting, you're, you're getting in touch with those parts of yourself that are um, moving you in a different, in a different direction than you would be. Like we said earlier, calling has to be something that you're not, it has to be a path that you're not currently walking on. And the part of the part of your unconscious, your unconscious is confirming or it's either confirming or um, alarming you that you're either on the right path or the wrong path. And it, it, the word that we use to describe that feeling, that experience is calling is I, I, I awaken to this sense that I'm not on the path that I should be on. And I feel like I should, um, I should be, I feel like I should be different in the, in the world. I should be a different person. I should be expressing myself differently than I am. And that's, that's what Jung and Freud would say is, is discovering is making the contents of the unconscious conscious. And, and, you know, we would say that's, that's the call that's hearing your calling and following, following your calling. But it's really in, in, in the way you say it, uh, which I think is best is it's becoming, it's becoming the called version of yourself. It's becoming who you, who you, your true self. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, people that hear or, or have some idea of their calling, right. That have this experience, the vast majority of them follow it. Mm-hmm. It It is, it is compelling for them. And in some way they follow it. It's the, it's like the tiny, tiny minority of folks that actually don't. Right. And we talked about those folks at the beginning. Um, so, so what that, what, what that means for me is that it's not a calling if it's something that I hear and I'm able to just shrug my shoulders and disregard. Right. To hear or to know your calling is to be transformed, is to become a person then that is called toward something. Mm-hmm. So it takes you into yourself, not away from yourself. Yes. That's and and I think when we were talking about grief and suffering, that's one of the roles of suffering, is that it takes us beneath the routines of life. It takes us further into ourselves. And I think I, I'm and I may be over overreaching here, but I'm just going to go with it. I think that, um, I think that what we're talking about is uh, is like a a metaphor for the incarnation in a sense. In that, what what is the what's what is a claim of the incarnation? It's that. In order to to access the divine, you have to go through your humanity. You have to yes. go through humanity rather than the other way around. The divine is not an escape from our humanity. It actually makes us more human. Yes. Um, and so what we're talking about here when we talk about these like big ideas or the sense of soul or right, c- getting in touch with, you know, with your spirit, it's it's I don't think it's really that weird to anybody that that thinks the incarnation has a claim to truth. Right. I think it still well, works. Yeah, well that's why there's so many different ways to talk about it that are mm-hmm. all that all that are that all point you in the same direction because whether it's god or whether it's your unconscious it might as the Jung's point is it might as well be god because it exerts that same power yeah. over yeah. you and it and it it makes you you if you if you stay in it if you go deeper in it it makes you more of who you are it makes you the the highest version of you if you deny your calling if you resist it cuts you off from the deepest parts of yourself you become disassociated. You become 
a less realized version of yourself. And to Jung's point, if you continue to do that, you lose access completely to the deepest, truest parts of your soul, of your psyche. If you, if you don't live in that calling, that's the neuroses is that you can't from there, you can't access those parts of your, if you don't experience that grief, if you don't um, listen and hear the voice from within, then you lose uh, you. I mean, you, you basically, you forfeit your soul. You can't, you don't have access. And I don't mean in the eternal heaven and hell form. I mean, in the here and now, like you, you forfeit the joy, the experience, the human experience of, of being in the world and being your true self. You're, you're disassociated. You're, you, you got two different people living inside of you that, that aren't, that aren't integrated. So does that, Matt, does that, does that add new meaning to Jesus saying, um, what is a profit a man to gain the whole world, but, but forfeit his soul or to lose his soul in the sense that if, uh, a, a calling, a calling compels us to risk wow. and to sacrifice, right? Yeah. Yep. And what what does it profit someone to refuse to risk, or refuse to follow their calling, um, refuse to gain sacrifice the whole world, and yet never access their soul? Yep. You you and forfeit is the perfect word, huh. because you just yeah. you you voluntarily. You gave it up. You traded it, yeah, for to avoid to avoid sacrifice. You you, you gave away that part of your of your humanity. You, you gave away that part of um, your experience in the world, the the joys of of sacrifice, and and what that ultimately brings. Which yeah, that that's yeah, that hits perfectly. Yeah. Well, dude, I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I'd say so. This was a good one. And um, I appreciate all the hard work and insight that you've put into this. You're really, you're really onto something important. Yeah, man. I, I, I mean, I hope so. (laughs) Thanks. It's been, it's been four and a half years of my life. So I hope so. Yeah. I think you're looking at this from, from a perspective that um, is not, is is high is rare this is a rare you're giving a rare deep look into this into this really meaningful experience that people just don't ordinarily um and you're giving language to that experience that people haven't been able to to express so so well done yeah yeah man i appreciate it um Look, next week, let's, I, I do really want to talk about how each Enneagram number may experience a sense of calling, what that might yes. look like. Yeah. So, so let's pick up on that in our next, in our next conversation. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think, I think that would be good. All right, man. That'd be fun. All right, dude. See you. See ya.